I'm going to pray again. It's good for me, if no one else. Lord, we ask that you would honor yourself as we look at your word. Father, that you'd help us to gain more of a sense of your heart, your priorities, the things you love and the things you askew. And Lord, would you direct our hearts, our affections, our minds, our thoughts toward you. Lord, at the end of the day, would you help us to value you, a relationship with you, knowing you above everyone and everything else. In Jesus' name, amen. There's no one here this morning whose life wasn't drastically changed on September 11th, 2001. You know, some of you are old enough that it was said when President uh, Kennedy was assassinated when you heard the news you remembered where you were and what you were doing and I'm old enough that I'm in that group and probably most of us here this morning are old enough too to remember where we were what we were doing September 11 2001 when we heard the news about the terrorist attack I was doing a home inspection in West Topeka it was that morning and I had rolled up to the property. I went in to introduce myself to the homeowner and they were in the process of moving and the moving guys are there and the house is kind of a wreck. They're boxing everything up. They've got a big screen TV on and there's this movie on. And I've introduced myself to the homeowner and I'm, I'm sort of captivated by the big screen movie of these planes going into this building and I thought that's got to be a new release because I have not seen this one. And I'm laughing when I asked the movers, what movie is this? And they were not happy with me. And they said, this isn't a movie. This is going on right now. This is New York. So, it, you know, I was horrified, horrified wonder. I stood there watching for a few moments more. And then I went outside to, the, uh, to my van. And... Uh, yeah, I was just weeping as I called Kathy, and she, she had no idea. She was at home, you know, what was going on, too. You know, to me and probably to everyone else here who's old enough to remember that, this, this was totally out of the blue. It was a total shock, totally unlooked for. Um, you know, our lives were forever changed in that moment when these events start unfolding before us. But, you know, the truth was, for 19 guys, this was not a surprise. And for all the folks that helped, those 19 guys who hijacked four airliners and murdered almost 3,000 people, this was not a surprise. This was the full-born fruit of wicked plans they had been engineering in their hearts literally for years. So to us, on the outside, sort of looking in, this happens in a moment of time, catches us totally by surprise, but to the perpetrators of those deaths and the destruction of property and lives, this was no surprise. This was the, Scripture would talk about the wicked plans of the heart devised over time, plotted, planned, and imagined, and then executed. No surprise at all for them. This was simply the full-born fruit of the plans they had been making all along. The death of the innocents, the destruction of others, People that they didn't know and, and never would know. Uh, all was the fruit of the plans of the heart. We're in week four of a seven-part series on the things God hates from Proverbs 6. And before I get into this this morning, a couple of 
words. I know this has been a difficult series because uh, I've talked to enough of you. When you talk about the things God hates, the negatives, it's difficult. You're not talking about bright and rosy things, things that are inherently encouraging. We're talking about sin and sin's consequences. And so those are things that are difficult to hear, much less week after week. We're in week four. We've got a few more to go after this. So I'm aware of that. And months ago when I was praying about, Lord, where should I teach next? This is what I was convinced God wanted me in. So no apologies in that sense, but I really appreciate your forbearance and your patience as I know it's been a difficult series to go through. The other thing is, I do hope that it it is more than a focus on the thing God hates, the downside, the death elements that we're talking about, because each week we're wanting to see What's God's antidote to the things he hates? You know, in contrast to what God hates, what does he love? And for us, what does he want our hearts to be caught up with? You know, so there's the thing he hates, but then there's the thing he loves. And what does that look like for us? So in ways that are helpful and appropriate, I hope for each one of us on any one of these Sundays that there's a real sense of perhaps a need for repentance if we see that we're caught up in the things God hates. That's a good thing. And that ends in life. And on any given Sunday, I, I do hope there's a sense of encouragement for God's antidote to the sin and the sin issues and the things He hates. So I know it's been difficult. It won't get any easier for the next few weeks until we're done with this. So thanks for bearing with me. God hates hearts that devise wicked plans. This is out of Proverbs 6. I hope you have a study sheet. Uh, Verses 6 through 18a, there are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, that was week one, the whole issue of pride. A lying tongue, the work of Satan, Satan's kingdom lies. Hands that shed innocent blood, also the work of the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light. And this morning, a heart that devises wicked plans. God hates hearts that devise wicked plans. We'll do the same thing this morning we've done before. We'll look a little bit at the language Proverbs uses. We'll sort of build our case with some other Old Testament texts and see if there's any conviction at all to be found for any of us. And we'll look at some practical applications and the upside God means us to walk away with. The first thing, the heart, the Hebrew word, word there for heart, the inner man, the soul, the mind, the will, the understanding. The heart is the seat of our affections. The heart is the place from which we make our choices. The desires of the heart are the things we love and the things we hate. You know, it's really important what's going on in our heart. We tell people, if you talk about biblical counseling and someone comes to you and they've got an, an issue, a behavior issue, you say, look, the behavior issue, that's one element. But if you don't change the heart, nothing else will change. The behaviors follow the desires of the heart. To devise means to cut or to plow, to engrave. And it has the thought of, there's, there's clarity in developing the way I'm going to do something. So if I'm a farmer and I'm planning on plowing a field, I'm going from point A to point B, I'm cutting a straight row, I'm figuring out how do I get from point A to point B. I'm devising a plan. I'm using my thoughtfulness and my imagination to say how can I get from here to where I want to go. 
The last word there, wicked, in the Hebrew generally translated either trouble or sorrow. So just to fill this out in our own minds a little bit, let me give you the synonyms for the English word that we translate it to, wicked. So synonyms for that would be unrighteous, ungodly, blasphemous, immoral, corrupt, depraved, dissolute, heinous, infamous, and villainous. Is that helpful? Those are the wicked things that God hates. So, this is paraphrased. My expanded paraphrased version is on your study sheet. God hates when we set our heart, our thoughts, our affections, our mind, our will, on devising, that is planning, conspiring, imagining, ways in which we may accomplish Wickedness, that is, bringing about trouble, sorrow for others, immoral ends, or ungodly behavior. We go to some other verses that speak about this. In the verses that directly precede this, Proverbs 6, 12-14, it says, A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. That is the work of the perverse or the wicked person. Genesis 6 verse 5. Remember last week we said we barely get eight verses into Genesis 4. The first narrative after the account of the fall in the Garden of Eden before we get to the first murder. Genesis 4. But we're just into Genesis 6 when God says this about humanity just before he brings the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. Early on there, shortly after the fall, God looks and he says, every intent of the heart of man is on evil. In fact, that era was characterized by Violence, that's certainly typical of our own day as well. In response to the evil of men's heart, Genesis 6 says, God's heart was grieved. And then that later becomes the thing that God abhors, the things that lead to that kind of grief. Psalm 7.14 says, The wicked man conceives evil, is pregnant with mischief, gives birth to lies. Now, I like this because it really develops the, the thought. So, you know, if a woman gets pregnant, you know, initially no one knows she's pregnant, do they? Maybe except her. But then there's this developmental process. And eventually, after months worth of time, she gives birth and the baby can be seen. Well, God says that's what it's like with wickedness. It's a plot inside me that takes time to develop and ripen before its fruit is visible. It's a process. So the wicked hearts that we're thinking about in our mind, eventually, like the development of a child in the womb, grows over time and then is is birthed and it's seen by everyone. I won't look at all the verses you've got on your study sheet, so I'll skip through some of these. Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. Can you imagine if I'm going up to my 
parent and I'm doing the thing they hate and I'm asking at the same time to bless me. This does not make sense. And so the psalmist says, if I go to God harboring wickedness, I can count on He's not going to listen to what I have to say in the moment. That wickedness isolates me from God and His fellowship. Psalm 141.4, David prays for himself, don't incline my heart to any evil thing to practice deeds of wickedness. You see, don't incline my heart that ends up in a practice. God, would you keep me from the thing I might end up doing otherwise? David's a believer. He trusts in the Lord. He's a good man, right? And yet he's praying about and for himself. God, don't let me go to those things in my heart that you hate. Isaiah 32.6, the fool speaks nonsense. His heart inclines towards wickedness. When we allow our heart to incline towards wickedness, God says you're a fool. You're being foolish. You're not going to get life out of that. You're going to get death. And last, Micah 2 verse 1 Woe to those who scheme iniquity, they work out evil on their beds, when morning comes they do it. Just like the imagery of pregnancy, this is the same thing. They're lying on their bed thinking about it. When they get up in the morning, they go out and do it. It's a process, it requires time. So that's the thing God hates. Iniquity cherished in my heart, developed over time, eventually brings its fruit out, whatever that wickedness is that I've been plotting and planning. God hates when we give ourselves to meditate in our hearts on evil, when we set our affections and desires on the things God hates. Now, there's another proverb, Proverbs 30, verse 20, that's I'm not sure why I've always appreciated it, kind of the imagery. I can see this in my mind's eye. Proverbs 30, verse 20 says, This is the way of an adulteress. So he, he's speaking about an adulteress. This is a woman who's been unfaithful to her covenant relationship with her husband. And it's her way of life, okay? So she's characterized by this. But when she sits down to her meal, she eats, wipes her mouth, and says, you can, She's dainty, no doubt. She's got the linen napkin. She wipes the corners of her mouth and she says, I have done no wrong. Your whole way of life is wrong. But she sits down in a given moment and says, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. You know, what, what wicked thing? If we conducted a poll in the auditorium this morning, or if we went out in the streets of the city, or if we went any place in this country and we said, we are looking for those who are wicked in heart. Are you one of them? Are you planning wickedness in your heart? Do you think we'd get many takers on that? Would we? Do you think the terrorists who destroyed the innocent lives of almost 3,000 people, do you think they thought that what they were doing and the intentions of their heart were wicked? Unlikely. Very unlikely. So if we say, well, the hands of those who cherish wickedness in their heart, well, we raise those hands right now, probably no hands are going to go up, right? So if you say, we read this text and we say, that's not me, thank God that's not me. I'm, I'm saying, well, maybe, maybe not. David prayed for himself. You know, God, please keep me. And David's after God's heart. But is there a chance, maybe, that there might even be one of us in this auditorium, if perhaps in small ways, if not in the biggest, most sensational ways we think of, is it possible that anyone here cherishes these same kinds of things? Kathy and I watched a video last night. It's on YouTube. You may have seen it also. The young man that went through the University of California at Santa Barbara this week murdered six other people, has a grotesquely self-centered video 
which he made before he went out and did this, and then posted, in which he explained to everyone why he was going to do that thing the next day, that he was going to wipe out as many people as he could. You, you see, it wasn't an accident, those shootings. You know, the guy driving through town with a gun, shooting people as he went. This was the full-born fruit. Murder was the full-born fruit of what he'd been thinking about. And he gave us the insights into his soul and his heart on a video that anyone today can watch. It's grotesque. But again, it's a surprise to everyone else, but it's not a surprise if you knew where this guy's heart was beforehand. So, is it possible that we might entertain the kind of plots, plans, devices that God abhors? Is that possible? I think it is, obviously. You know, as the father of four girls, I was routinely, when they were growing up, uh, thinking about how to appropriately inform them and you know, help them be aware of their surroundings and keep them from trouble that didn't need to come their way. And so, for that reason, because I was fascinated also just by the way humanity works, I'd read several books on uh, police cases and on FBI files, on profilers and, and these kinds of things. And what, one of the things, the, the, the big, one of the big lessons for me out of reading those books was this that a lot of the perpetrators of these crimes of rape, kidnapping, murder, and violence, for a lot of it, uh, these were first-time offenders who had been thinking about this type of crime for a long, long time. Often, of course, if it was violence against women, it was fed or that thought was inflamed by lots of pornography as well. But... These, these guys, almost always, of course, men, these guys were fomenting this evil desire in their heart over a long period of time. And the crime occurred when this accident waiting to happen stumbled onto a ready victim. Do you, you know what I mean? It's like um, they're a gun cocked and waiting to go off, and this person happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so we would just tell our girls things like, guys, never go anyplace alone. You don't have to. Always go in pairs. You know, just the common sense things. Because you don't know who these people are. You don't know where they are. And so this act of violence against a person comes out of the blue to the victim, but it was just the full-born fruit of the person who had been preparing this thing in their hearts all along the way. A surprise to others, but not to that person. Likewise, the person who cheats on their spouse, the person who steals when the opportunity presents itself, the person who acts to harm someone else in secret, usually only does so after they've entertained that thought in their heart, and usually not once or twice, but over a lengthy period of time. They've done the thing, God says there in Proverbs 6, they've devised the way by which they would do it. They've plotted the line. They know how to do this thing. The coast is clear. I can do this. It's been going on in the heart long before the event actually happened. Now, maybe we're not flying planes into buildings. And maybe we're not a mass murder. But are there lesser ways in which we entertain sins in our heart that go along with this same thing that we're, we're harboring, we're fertilizing, we're growing intentionally something in our mind something in our affections, in our imaginations, that God says, Junior, those are the things I hate. 
Get those out of your mind. Don't think on those things. You know, many of us say, in a time of uh, anger, something that we wouldn't say in any other time. Uh, we say in the moment of anger, the, the thing we might even say later, I'm sorry I didn't mean that. And I'm sorry I didn't mean that. That might or might not be true. But usually it would be unusual for us to say something, even in a moment of anger, that we hadn't thought about before. You know, if you get me mad and I say something derogatory towards you, I probably thought that in the past. And so in that unguarded moment, what has been in my heart is what comes out. Moment of anger, words that I would otherwise bring back. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, how can you speak good when you're evil? It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth evil. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. This just cannot be otherwise. What's in our heart, that's eventually what comes out. Words of anger, they're saying something that we've harbored in our heart. Men, if we daydream of women we're not married to in sexual ways, we're doing the thing God hates. In our heart, in that moment, we're doing what God hates. When we take long, lustful looks, we're entertaining sin in our heart. That's the thing. That's the beginning of what God says He abhors. Or ladies, when we daydream, when you daydream about men you're not married to, you're entertaining thoughts God means for you to reject. Or has this happened to you? You see someone else, and maybe there's someone else that you think aren't your equal in one way or another in life, and yet they've got bigger or better or brighter or newer, whatever. Do you find this temptation in your heart to say they're not that important? Why do they get that? And I don't get that. In other words, thoughts of greed or envy or avarice in one way or another tend to come up. Do we entertain those in the moment? Those are the little ways. Matthew fifteen nineteen, Jesus said, It's out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. And that's the, that's the, our hearts are the fertile place for all this stuff to occur. And that's true, guys, this is true for all of us in here. All of us in here. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Does that apply to your heart? That applies to your heart. Does that apply to my heart? Absolutely in spades. That's true. That's a general truth for all of humanity. Guys, our hearts are so wicked that sometimes we think we know what we're thinking and plotting, and we don't. Our sin nature is just so devious that at a given point in time, we may not even know why we're doing what we're doing. It's deceitful. We can't figure out the depths of our own wickedness. There's a problem with that, of course. David said in Psalm 24, 3, verse 4, 3 and 4, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can go hang out with God? I think Psalm 15 says almost the same thing. Who can stand in His holy place? Who is it that God will allow in to His presence? He who has clean hands and... means He hasn't done wickedness in action. His hands are free. And a pure heart. That's problematic, isn't it? If our hearts are evil and wicked, if Jeremiah 17.9 describes your heart and mine, but we need clean, pure hearts to see God, we've got a problem. 
Our old hearts, we'll develop this just a little bit, but our old hearts will always default to wicked meditations because that's the diet they feed on. We don't have to work on this. We have to work against this. You don't have to work on sinful thoughts in your heart. You have to work against sinful thoughts in your heart. You and I, out of that old heart and its affections, the things that it craves and desires, we could have religious meditations and still be filled with pride. And remember, Jesus in those Matthew passages is addressing religious leaders, by the way. Religious people. More religious than you and me. They know more of the Bible than we know today, too. Memorize more. Okay, these are relig- They're intentional, right? And Jesus says, your hearts are filled with abominations. They might be thoughts of how we can bless someone else, but at the end of it all, it's really about how I can bless myself. How I can feel better about me. Our old heart has never had and never will and never can a truly God-honoring thought, plan, or meditation. It's impossible. And in our noblest moments, our best thoughts look like dirty rags to God. So that's what we bring to the plate, to God. God says you've got to have a pure heart, and yet this is what we're bringing. So we know there's a problem, don't we? I love some other texts out of the Old Testament um, in fact, these are, these are guys who lived through the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. But, of course, God knew that Jews in, back in the day had an issue, a heart issue, and, and He knows that's true for us today as well. And so He said way back in the day, this would be 600 B.C. or so, He said, I'm going to do something about that old sinful heart you guys have. So in Ezekiel 11... Ezekiel lives through the captivity, goes to Babylon, and writes from Babylon while Judah's still a kingdom, and then after Jerusalem's destroyed. And so he sees the beginning, the middle, and the end of this captivity period. But God speaks through Ezekiel to a time in which Jews would go back to the land of promise, and God would do something about their heart. He says, when they come there, they will remove all its detestable things, all its abominations, all the idolatry, God says, the Jews will remove from the land of promise. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I'll take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. To the query, you know, who can go to God's temple? The guy with the pure heart? God says, I will give you a pure heart. You don't have it on your own. You can't get it. But I'm going to give that to you. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah, who also lives through the destruction of Judah and the captivity, into the captivity, said famously in Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant God would make, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord. You need to get to know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them even to the greatest. God says, I'm going to take my work. The outside things that were written on tablets of stone, I'm going to write those on a new heart inside. I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit. When you get to the New Testament, this is the same thing Jesus talks about in John 7.38. You remember he's there in Jerusalem at the great feast, and he stands up and he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now John clarifies and says he's speaking about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit springing up life out of the new heart of the person who believes in Jesus. If you go to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, he still trades on this thought of stony hearts and God's Word written on tablets of stone versus soft human hearts that would actually respond appropriately to God. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, like the first covenant and law was, but on tablets of human hearts. If you pursue 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says the treasure you have as a Christian is the new heart, it's the new life inside this clay pot jar that is our physical existence. And if you get to chapter 5 in that same epistle, he says the Christian has become a new creation. The old things, the old wicked heart, that doesn't characterize us anymore. There's a new creation, there's a new heart, there's a new set of desires. God does not, this is important, God does not, in a significant sense, God does not save us. He does not save our old life. Guys, He crucifies it with Christ and He starts over with something new. He doesn't clean us up. He doesn't make us religious. He doesn't make us better. He crucifies us and then He gives us a new life. That's the deal. Jesus told Nicodemus that a person must be born again. They must have a new heart. They must have a new life if they're going to participate or enter into the kingdom of heaven. And David prayed in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now this is David again. This is the guy after God's own heart who committed the sins of adultery and murder. Is it possible for someone who loves God and follows them to do the things God hates and to, and to bring about the full-blown fruit of those wicked imaginations in the heart into the lives of others destructively? Absolutely. And so David says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. God does give us a new heart. You know, if you don't know for sure, absolutely. If you say, and this is... Uh, um, when a person gets born again, when a person says to God, Lord, I get it that you're holy and I'm not. I get it that I am sinful. And Jesus has died. His death on the cross, the atonement for my sin, His sacrifice, substitution for my guilt. When we accept that, we get that new heart. And that new heart, it has its own desires. And just as surely as that old sinful heart can never desire to please God ultimately, Paul says this in Romans 7, but that new heart can never sin because it's created after God's own life, after Jesus' own life. And this is the challenge for us as believers. It's that you have an old sinful heart and you have a new righteous heart and they live side by side. If you don't have a new set of desires, and I say this carefully, Ask yourself if there's ever been the moment when you knew I've trusted Jesus Christ to cover my sins. Because when you're born again, that really is a new birth. You really are a new person. You really should have a new set of holy desires because you have both the Holy Spirit of God and you have a heart created after Jesus' own heart that has its own appropriate righteous desires. So I've got an old, sinful, wicked, deceitful heart that's capable of anything. 
And side by side with it, I've now got a new heart created in righteousness that doesn't sin and can't sin. And that's the problem. That's where most of us live today. I'll keep this a little short on the second half here. Romans 7 and Galatians 5 describe this challenge for us. So if I say to you, hey, you've got a new heart, it can't sin. You say, fine, what's the problem? You've still got the old one in there too. And so in Romans 7, theologians sometimes dispute this. Romans 7, Paul says, you know the things that I want to do, I don't do those things. The bad things that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. You know, and I joyfully concur with God in my inner man, we would say in my new heart, in my new spirit, joyfully concur, but I see a different law, waging war in the members of my body. Now theologians argue on, did that represent a believer or an unbeliever? I say, it's the believer, man. Are you kidding? I've lived it. I'll bet you have too if you're a Christian. That's the common experience, isn't it? Old sinful desires, new righteous desires, which one's going to win? I'm in conflict within. And so if we're going to avoid the kind of thing that God hates from Proverbs 6, we're going to have to do something about this, aren't we? We're going to have to find a way to win for the new righteous desires in my new heart to be the winner over that old deceptive, deceiving, lying, wicked heart. And this is where Proverbs 4.23 comes in. This really requires intentionality. Uh, We taught through a series a number of years ago. Some of you might remember it. Uh, You know, if the fish, if a salmon is in the river, if it's not swimming, it's being swept downstream. It's dead stuff. It's flotsam and jetsam that goes down with the stream. It's only the live fish that go up against it. And we said, if you're not swimming against the grain, if you're not swimming upstream, you're dead. You're dead in the water. You're flotsam and jetsam. So we want to be intentional about staying alive and about being engaged appropriately. Proverbs 4.23 says, this is the ESV, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all diligence. New American Standard says, Watch over your heart with all diligence. From it flow the issues or the springs of life. The Hebrew language here gives the thought of treating your heart like a prisoner. The picture is your heart is in a a jail and you're the jailer. And you bring that kind of intentionality to what goes in the jail to your heart. Watch over it like a guard watches over a prisoner. It's not that the prisoner can't get out, it's that we want to protect what goes in. And we're supposed to see our heart like a prisoner that we're guarding thoughtfully all the time. It requires intention and thought and purpose. Psalm 19, verse 14. I love this uh, from David's psalm. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Same kind of thing. That does not happen if we're not bringing intentionality to guarding our heart. Do you remember back in the day when computers were still new, the phrase garbage in, garbage out? Garbage in? Feed garbage soft uh, language to the computer, you'll get garbage out. That's the same thing that's true with your heart and mine. If we're going to guard our heart, we want to make sure that we're putting in the right kinds of things. This gets to the point. I know I say this uh, ad infinitum. 
to read your Bibles. Um, guys, the, the world, we are, we are ridiculously overstimulated. And there is more stuff you can focus the eyes of your head on, the eyes of your heart on today than any time in history. On TV, online, newspapers, billboards, go through you know, magazines at the grocery store. I mean, you are assaulted every place we go with messages. And most of it, of course, is the wrong kind of message. And so if we're not really intentional about this, you're just going to default to the old. You've got to work at feeding and informing the new heart. And reading God's Word is the place to go. That's the way to get there. That's the way to get there. You know, if you say to yourself, I just I have trouble reading my Bible every day, or I just it's not exciting enough, or it doesn't make sense to me, or something like that, I would say something like, it just means that you're used to junk food and you don't know what a real feast is like. We should be drawn to our Bibles, not because we have to. And listen, about this, you know, if you feel like I'm in a biblically literate group, so I'll read my Bible so I can fit in, I'll have something intelligent to say in the next Bible study, you know, who cares? I mean, really. That's not why you go to the Bible. But we want to go to draw near to God, and that's where we meet Him, right? And He reveals Himself to us. And we want to be in the Word because that's where God sets the feast. He sits down with us, we gain knowledge of Him, we draw near to Him when we're meeting with Him in His Word. And if you're reading in a place in the Bible that you say, I'm in Leviticus or I'm in one of the Old Testament prophets, I have no idea what's going on. I'd say take a break and read in Psalms or Proverbs or the Gospels or the narratives and get a place where you can appreciate what's being said and come back to those later and work on those and develop your taste over time. But if you're not reading your Bible regularly, it's because you don't have a taste for it. And if you get a taste for it, taste and see that the Lord is good, that's true of the Word. So if you're just reading the Word... I was in Psalm 65 this morning and I forgot how good it was. In fact, I was in the first half and I forgot it was Psalm 65, one of my favorite psalms. You know, I'm just reading through. And, and then it's like, it's a savor. I'm enjoying the feast in the moment and I'm remembering all the other times I've read Psalm 65 and just thought, that is so good. That's what happens when we meditate in the Word. We're not just reading our Bible. We're making it our own. We're chewing it up like a good meal. We're, we're considering it. We're swallowing it down. It becomes a part of us. No one can take that from you. When you do that, you're guarding your heart. You're feeding your new heart created in Jesus' likeness with the right food. That's the way you combat the old deceitful heart. Listen, one of the problems related to the whole thing of sanctification, transformation, leaving the old, embracing the new is if you focus on do not, do not, do not, you will. If your view of righteousness is do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, you will taste, you will touch, you will handle. It's because it's the focus of our heart. I say do not, whatever I keep telling myself, do not that thing, that's what I'm thinking about. It's guaranteed, that's where I'm going to end. So while it's appropriate for us to be careful as guards about what's coming in, there should be some appropriate do not. Mike, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't entertain that, right? That's okay. 
But the greater pull for us in guarding our hearts so that we hate what God hates, love what God loves, is informing it according to what God loves. It's filling our heart up with the knowledge of God. And guys, you know, we just, just begin to get a taste of that here. Whatever turns your crank, whatever really gets you excited, whatever you see that you say, man, that is so cool, or I love that, it's, it's food, or it's nature, or it's software, whatever it is, you think you're just getting a taste of some little corner of the goodness of God. And that's just going to expand infinitely when we see God face to face. But that's what we're doing when we guard our heart by feeding on God's Word. You, you can worry less about the old heart because your passions and your desires have a better thing. I've got a better meal to sit down to than the beans and rice that I was used to. I've got something better. And so I don't have to tell myself all the time, do not, do not, do not. I can say, I want to go down and sit down with that feast with the Lord. But let me wind down with this. Oh, let me say this too. If you find you have an area in your life, you have an object of affection in your heart that you say, you know what, this thing's been with me for a long time. I just have trouble getting away from this. You know, there's power in opening up that part of your life to someone else to a mentor, to a group, someone else or some group of people you could sit down with and say, I've got this problem in this area. I just want somebody else to know, to pray with me, to pray for me. If you find that there's some, some object of affection that you know it's one of those things God hates and you just can't get rid of it, open up to another brother or sister in Christ, bring the light of day into that and just get the counsel and the advice and the prayer support that will help you Inform the new and lay the old aside. Okay, there's no guilt. We're covered in Jesus' blood. We stand faultless before the King, but we're still working through some of these things together before we see God face to face. You know, the most wicked plot in the history of the world was not 9-11. It went back a lot further than that. Matthew 12-9, I'm going to wind down rapidly here, but I just want to get this in. Matthew 12-9, if you remember on the front end of Jesus' ministry, He's in a synagogue and the Jewish leaders already don't like him. He's competition. There's a guy there with a withered hand. Will he heal the guy on the Sabbath? And of course he does. Is it okay to, to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Is it okay to heal or to harm on the Sabbath? Jesus heals. And, and isn't this interesting? It says of the Pharisees, they went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him. Is conspiring to murder someone on the Sabbath, is that okay on the Sabbath? I don't know. It doesn't sound right to me. I don't know. Maybe. You go further in Jesus' ministry, you get into Matthew twenty-two fifteen. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Him in His words. This is the latter half of His ministry. He's in Jerusalem, so they're going to send one plant after another to try and get Jesus to trick Him and alienate the Jews or find Himself in hot water with the Romans. They're going to try and trick Him and trip Him up. And then last, Matthew 26, 3, the chief priests, the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. From man's angle, the crucifixion, just like 9-11, it was not a surprise to the people who were plotting it. You know, crucify him, crucify him, that was just the full-born fruit of the plots, the wicked plans of the heart that had been developing in these guys for about three years. All the things that we end up doing, they start in the heart. 
if we find ourselves doing something wrong, the place to address that ultimately is in the heart. Sometimes we justify evil imaginations by minimizing them. We rationalize them. We explain to ourselves why a little of this evil thing that God hates and a little of that evil thing God hates is okay. And, and that's, guys, it's setting us up. It's the beginning of the end. It's setting us up for trouble. The notion of murder played and replayed in the mind and fortified by one rationalization after another is how the 9-11 terrorists accomplished their wickedness. The plans of the heart eventually realized in the work of their hands. And the little acts of betrayal, the inward turning away from God to the things God hates, is exactly how the Pharisees started out as well. Because you and I will not find ourselves falling into any sin that we didn't make provision for in the imaginations of our heart. The place to arrest this is in the heart. If instead we'll draw near to God and His Word, we'll find a joy and a satisfaction that is what our new hearts are made for. The work of guarding our hearts is a whole lot easier if my inner inclinations are being routinely informed by the good things of God's Word and simply by knowing God for who He is and what He is. Last, Paul Tripp says, in ways of which you're not always aware, your ministry and our life is always shaped by what is in functional control of your heart. What is in functional control of our heart? Father, your words arrest us right where we live. Uh, You speak to the things that involve every one of us here. Father, we confess that apart from the sufficiency of Jesus, we have absolutely no hope of right standing in your presence, but that thankfully, covered by his blood, Lord, our sins adequately atoned for by his offering, thank you so much that we have free access into your very presence. And Father, would you help us to take advantage of that daily to just come before you, to pour out our hearts and our needs to you, Lord to feast on Your Word, to get to know You, which is life. Lord, would You help the life of Christ in us flame up, grow full-sized, so that we can honor You, Lord, and do the things that please You. In Jesus' name, Amen.